This episode of Birth of Living Code is sponsored by SuperHigh. SuperHigh is a great way to learn coding, web design, or project management. I've learned HTML, CSS, and more on SuperHigh myself, and I'm currently doing a course on experimental JavaScript there as well. It's in your own home, at your own pace learning, and SuperHigh has a great supportive community where we share ideas, code problems, and even job opportunities. Visit SuperEye.com to learn more. And speaking of web design, it was while I was doing a course there when I came up with this strange idea that I I think is going to be a great introduction to the concept of this episode. I was thinking about how, when you learn to play a new instrument, you use a lot of different senses. Of course, your ears hear the notes of a violin, you see which key to press on a piano, and you place your fingers on the string of a guitar to manipulate the sound that you want to create. And over a long time, if you practice enough, playing an instrument becomes incredibly intuitive. But code doesn't work that way. It only relies on your eyes to see the letters in the program that you've written. Writing code is not intuitive at all. And here's this strange idea of mine. Let's say that you have a web page and you want the background of this page to be green. We use a command called background color and we tell that background color to be green. But what if the command is also an instrument. And when we choose a color like blue, yellow, or red, we change what the instrument plays. And let's say that you have two images on this page and you want these images to be further apart. We use a command called margin. We tell how many pixels this margin should be in order to move the images. So if we say move one pixel, two pixel, three pixel, we make the margin command an instrument and the pixels what it plays. We can use this with text and change the font and how big the text should be and add all of this to all of the commands in the entire page and create the symphony. And maybe that will make learning how to code become a little more intuitive, just like playing an instrument. Because human brains are intuitive, but code is not. Yet how can we make code and the stuff we create with it be built on human intuition? That's the question for this episode. And to answer this, we're going to go back to my workspace, Rymtiden Idea Lab. But we're not going to talk to Max that made the You Look Beautiful robot just yet. First, let me introduce Ben Olyanka. So is that some robot stuff? Uh, no, that isn't. Um, robot stuff looks like... 
So right now the the way that you control it, I designed for a computer, um, and that's just good old HTML and JavaScript. Um, right now it also listens for key presses, um, so you can drive using. Using where is that code for key pressing? That's what this is. Oh yeah, um, key pressed. Include yeah. W. It's like super simple. Yeah. Uh, what? Um, yeah, I hope this works. Uh, he. My dad doesn't own a laptop, mm. so he, he only has his phone, so he's going to try it from his phone. And uh, normally it works fine. Okay. It's moving. Yeah, it's moving. Okay. Um, Let's see what my dad's doing. Okay, but before we start the call, would you mind explaining what are we going to do? Okay, so, um, so I had this idea to make uh, robots that you can control from other places in the world. And now I'm going to test it on my dad, uh, who lives in, in the U.S., in Michigan. And we're in Stockholm right now. Stockholm, we're in Sweden. Stockholm. And, and uh, he's, not, he's not very good at technology. No, he's not very good at technology. Um, and, uh, and I just want to see, yeah, like if it's intuitive for him to use or how he, um, how he responds to this weird situation where he can drive this robot around in Stockholm. If he finds it intuitive. Yes. Yeah, to see if it's natural for him to use or what happens. Let's see. Hello? Oh. Hey, Dad. Ben. Yeah. You can see? I can see yeah. you. Hello, Ben's dad. Nice to meet you. Hi. Nice to meet you. Okay. I can see you guys, but you can see me. Huh? Let's see. Yeah. That's, uh, that's us. <laughs> okay, and uh, so you see where the letters are? W, S, A, and D? Uh-huh. If you go... W, S, A, and D. Yeah. Okay, so go, go click on the letter, like hold down W and see what happens. Hold down W. Oh, oh stop, 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 stop. Okay, now, now try it back. S? Can you see it moving? Uh-huh, Okay. It's like zooming in and out. No, it's, it's driving. You're actually driving. Oh, for real? Yeah, so put, try A and D. Okay. Try. A, one, four, okay a. Oh, going sideways. Yeah. Oh, the arrow tells you where it's going, and then D would go to my right, right? Yes. Yeah. So you can you can drive around, and you can try to um, to push the balls, and it's like playing pool here, just a little game in the office. And uh, if you want, you can try to get the the balls in. <laughs> he said, Ben just put a little ball, and we're gonna try to get the robot to. To drive into the ball. I see. <laughs> uh, um, so use the arrow, the A letter to go left. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And then forward a little. Forward. Forward a little, little more. Yeah. Sure. And then um, a little bit right. To the right. Wow. Yeah. Turn left a little. Okay. And then forward. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's oh, okay. good. You almost got one there. Oh, a little oh, more. A little more. Forward, I forward. See. Now I know what I'm doing. Oh, okay. Oh. I see. I see. Now I think I know what I'm doing. Hey! You got it in. Yeah, back up, back up. You'll see. Yeah, yeah. There nice you go. go. Nice work. Yeah, good job, guys. Good job. <laughs> That's it. There you go. Nice work, Bobs. Yeah. Good job. 
Awesome. Congratulations. How would you say it is to drive? Like, is it is it easy or intuitive to drive? Like, is it natural and intuitive? Yeah, I think I, I would say it's it's uh it's intuitive because uh, I mean, like as as illiterate as I am, you know, using the computer or the mouse and all that stuff. I think somebody who is technologically savvy will uh, be more at ease using it than I am. Okay. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, so you'd say it's more intuitive for somebody who is like uh, uses computers a lot, right? But it seems like you got it pretty well. Like maybe you I mean, I, it didn't it didn't take that long. It's, it's easy to to uh, to get used to yeah. or to to use. Yeah. I don't think it's that complicated. I think it's very simple. Yeah. Good job, Benjamin. I'm so, so proud. You're really uh, a scholar and a gentleman. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. I got it from you, you know. Bye, Dad. All right. Bye, guys. Love you, Dad. See you. Okay, love you, too. Now, if I'd ask you the question, is Ben's robot alive? You'd think I'm pretty bonkers true. But that very question is actually somewhat important. Okay. So, uh, let me also get my notes. Yes. We think of robots as fundamentally different from ourselves. We don't ascribe genuine mental states, as in beliefs and desires, or thoughts and knowledge, to machines or code. Right, yes, yeah. So, uh, could you talk a little about like what kind of work have you done within that? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, this is Sam Tellman. Uh, my name is Sam Tellman, uh, and I'm a PhD student in cognitive science, working on uh, human-robot interaction. And I'm interested in um, how people intuitively understand robots and how their understanding of robots affect how they interact with robots. So. When people navigate the social world, so when they interact with each other, when we predict and explain behavior, we usually do that with reference to mental states. So I might predict that, uh, uh, why did Anna bring her umbrella uh, with reference to her belief that it is going to rain, right? So we do this all the time, we use this. And the thing is that um, in my research, uh, one thing that I've seen is that people use the same kind of uh, vocabulary also when they interact with robots. So um, when we see a robot do something and we want to explain that, then we, we intuitively use similar a similar way of explaining. But the thing is, robots and humans are very different. Um, so when we interact, we I can have a lot of assumptions that hold true uh, about uh, what you know, for example. So um, we're sitting around the table right now it happens to be empty, but let's say there were some objects there, uh, then I could kind of count on you seeing them uh, at also, probably if you're looking at them, you're also attending to them, right? And you probably draw similar conclusions about the, those objects as I would, so. That like, is if I pull my book here, like, you yeah. read this, this is a book, this is paper and it's, there's like some yes. written stuff on it. So we have this common ground knowledge. 
But when we interact with robots, those assumptions, in most cases, um, don't hold true anymore. So it can become very difficult to uh, refer to things in the environment, but also to predict um, the robot's behavior. Because it's not clear, like, what can the robot see and what, and what does it know and what does it not know? And that's the starting point of my research. So uh, I would say, I would uh, summarize it as something like, uh, what are the unique challenges associated with predicting and explaining the behavior of robots? So in contrast to, to people, that's what I do. That's what I try to find out. Mm. And then like this <clears throat> mental states, there's of course a lot of anthropomorphism, if I'm not mistaken. Sure, yeah. Uh, if you know of John McCarthy. Yeah, uh, yeah. You wrote a really good paper on anthropomorphism, of course. Right, exactly. Yeah, th th that term, uh, uh, so anthropomorphism is a, a little bit problematic in some ways because, yeah, so John McCarthy, for example, he's one of the founding fathers of AI. He said that um, when we interact with uh, AI or robots, we might have to uh, ascribe mental states to uh, these objects. But um, when talking about anthropomorphism generally, uh, it's usually defined as um, so att attributing some or ascribing some human-like uh, characteristic or property to an agent. And my view is that it's not necessarily about right or wrong. It's about predicting and explaining behavior. Um, so we have to separate two questions. So. Uh, attribution and, and beliefs about uh, the attributed mental states, are they real? So I used to take this example that when we watch <clears throat> Donald Duck, for example, on, on the television, and uh, we see the chipmunks is stealing uh, uh, Donald's pancakes, right? And he becomes really angry. So, of course, then we predict and explain the behavior of Donald Duck with reference to mental states, but we all know that Donald Duck doesn't have mental states. Um, so we have to separate those things, right? And mm. but when it comes to robots, yeah. it's a little bit more tricky, maybe. It's like, mm, do they really? Can we actually say that robots truly have mental states to some extent? It's kind of an open question. It depends on what a mental state is. What does it mean for something to think? Um, and there is really no consensus about that in the cognitive sciences. What is thinking? So, like, if you can answer the question of, does Donald Duck think, like, Donald Duck as a character, maybe we can also answer if computers think. Right, exactly, yes, in some way, yeah. So it depends on what view you have on thought, what it is. And uh, there are a lot of different theories about that. Some say um, mental states and processes are in the head. So there is, when we say that, uh, uh, yeah, so... Uh, Anna uh, believes that it's going to rain. Um, then some say, "Oh, yeah, that's yeah. Th there is really something like a f belief inside of Anna's brain, right?" And some other theories say that, well, it's it's not really that simple. Um, uh, what a belief is is really uh, patterns of behavior, and uh, yeah. And some say beliefs don't really exist; they're more like an illusion or a tool that we use, like a conceptual tool. But we won't find anything that approximates a belief inside the brain. We actually don't know at all. So there is um, 
research in social psychology on what's called theory of mind. And that's about uh, having a theory about others' minds. Uh, usually, uh, four-year-olds pass this test, but uh, before you're four, you don't pass the test. And it's about... Uh, so, do you want me to explain what that is, or yeah, test? Yeah. Okay. Um, is that the Sally N? Yeah, that's the standard yeah. variation, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Let's act out the Sally Ann test. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, it goes something like this. Um, uh, you have two dolls. One is called Ann and one is called Sally. And Sally has uh, two boxes. One to the left, one to the right. Uh, and she puts her marble in one of the boxes. And then she leaves the room. These two boxes. And Sally just left her marble in the left box. And Anne is still there with the boxes. And what she does is she picks up, uh, she picks up the marble uh, without Sally knowing, and she puts it in the other box. And then Sally comes back into the room. Now, uh, the child who witnesses this is now asked a question. Where will uh, Sally look for the marble? Question. Where is the marble after Anne moved it without Sally knowing? And uh, three-year-olds usually say, yeah, she will look, uh, so they will point towards where the marble is now without recognizing that Sally couldn't, wouldn't possibly know that because she went out, right? She didn't see the change uh, of the object. Three-year-olds usually point to where it was moved because they don't acknowledge or consider that Sally didn't see what they saw. Um, and uh, uh, four-year-olds, they, they usually uh, recognize that Sally couldn't have known this, so they will point to the, the first location. Um, and that's, so that's when you pass the false belief test. It's called the false belief test. It's a test of theory of mind. And how do you use that test in testing the theory of mind in robots? Yeah, um, I use it in a slightly different way uh, because in um, social psychology, they, they use it as a, a measure of a person has a possession of a theory of mind. I use it as a tool to have people reason about the mental states of robots. I don't test whether they have any theories at all. I'm kind of interested in how, how, they, uh, how they reason about the mental states of robots. So I could use, I use some variation of the Salian test Okay, okay, let's act this one out, too. But let's say, instead of uh, having, you know, Sally going out of the room, um, I can use some kind of occluder, so like uh, a curtain or something that I could put. We're back in the same scene. There's no Anne, but Sally is now a robot. So I put, like, a, a marble in one box in front of the robot, and then I pull... Um, like a curtain in, in between the robot and the scene. And then I switch places and then uh, I pull the curtain away. And uh, then uh, a, a person uh, looks at this and then I can see if they think that the robot is aware of the location change or not. And uh, that depends. So for example, if, if this uh, curtain is opaque and you cannot see through it, then uh, if it was a person, then uh, the person wouldn't be able to 
know that, but robots are a bit different. So I can get at the assumptions that people have. And I can also um, uh, investigate whether uh, if a robot has some kind of superhuman capability, how does that affect people's ability to infer what the robot knows and doesn't know? And I found that it becomes very difficult for people when robots have uh, superhuman perception or cognitive abilities. Then interaction kind of breaks down because people don't know what the robot knows and then they don't know how the robot will behave. So they can't predict its behavior. And then, then it becomes difficult to interact with it. Yeah. Mm. I mean, if you, if you would just straight up ask a random person by using the Sally Ann test through robots, people would have to ascribe mental states in order to predict behavior, even when most would consider these robots to not be alive at all. So we, we, we simply don't understand each other as well. And I think that affects all interactions with robots. Uh, the state of the art of AI and robot technology is very limited. Uh, as far as uh, social interaction goes. Uh, so it's very difficult now to interact in an, uh, some kind of um, natural way with robots. Although that is the aim of uh, human-robot interaction research, is to achieve this kind of fluent, natural interactions that we see in, in human-human interaction. We're absolutely not there yet. Yeah. It's mm. going to be uh, a very, very long way until we get really uh, fully autonomous, uh, highly intel socially intelligent AI and robots, I think. As far as Tamagotchis go, I don't, nor do I think Frank, the 50 Tamagotchi guy, considers them highly socially intelligent. It's going to be a little while more before we seamlessly can interact with robots. But if you look at the technological breakthroughs in recent years, I think it's going to show up sooner than we expect. The story about intuition takes a little break for now, but it'll continue in the next episode. I'll talk to you then.